Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. If you have a chance, check out the new podcast, Crooked History, and episode three features yours truly explaining how the Red Scare seeped into Americans' classrooms and changed the way teachers discuss communism and socialism. This ain't the first time that folks have been in our classrooms trying to decide what to teach. And so check us out on Crooked History, the Red Scare, episode three. Hey, this is DeRay. And we're going to pause to the people in this episode. It's me, Kaya, and Diara talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. And then I sit down with the one and only Professor Christopher Emden, the author of Ratchetemic, Reimagining Academic Success, where I learn a lot. This is the second time on the podcast. He's always a joy. This week, I am that guy is I don't really have advice as much as you should be watching Ted Lasso. I love Ted Lasso. I'm a Ted Lassian. I'm in. I'm sold. It's like phenomenal writing, incredible cast. Want to talk about every episode. DM me what you love about it. If you do watch it, if you don't, give it a chance. Watch the first two, three, and then just stick with it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at DR Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. All right, y'all. So we're together. We're here. Even though I talked about it last week in my news, and I'm sure y'all heard, we're going to raise it up again because now black folks are starting to pay attention to immigration now. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> thank you. Not just now. Not just now. <laughs> Mexicans in my family, we've been hurting for generations now, but okay. Now we got <laughs> Sheila Jackson Lee at the border. Now we ready to do some things. Okay. So one, I think it's a good thing ultimately. And I think it's actually been having over some time now how we're starting to have these intersectional conversations around immigration, because obviously it's just not Latinos that are crossing the border. It's everybody. Um, and so, you know, obviously this, this conversation has kind of, you know, sparked from what's happening with so many Haitians, um, at the southern border. And one thing that I just think is important that everybody knows and that I actually lifted up in my news last week was that many, 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 many of these Haitians that are at the southern border, they left Haiti months, weeks, or some even years ago. So many of them have been living in South and Central America. Now it's getting so bad. Now they're kind of pushing towards the border. Most of them have also crossed El Darien, which is, it's jungle, and it's a five-day trek that crosses from Panama to Colombia. It's not easy. Many people lose their lives. Many people are robbed, raped, et cetera. It's awful, obviously. So I just feel like I think it's important to raise that up because I think people, just the way immigration is talked about in this country and kind of sensationalized, you would think Haitians just left Haiti yesterday and got on a boat and ended up um, at the southern border of Mexico. But that's not the case at all. These people have gone through who knows what to get even to that point. Obviously, the images that we've been seeing, the fact that there's like a very slow response, a disorganized response to our general crisis at the border, I think is 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 telling and wild. Kaya DeRay, what are your what are y'all's thoughts? I mean, I think your point about when we pay attention to uh, what's happening at the border is an interesting one. One of the things that I learned that I didn't know um, when uh, Mr. Trump and his administration really started with their border enforcement was that there were lots of African immigrants at the border. It wasn't just Mexicans. And we weren't talking about that at all. And so I think how the media portrays the immigration struggles is really, really important. And, you know, they don't always tell the whole story. They tell a story that is, you know, that they want to tell. Um, and I think these last two weeks or so, watching the pictures that have come out at the border of them rounding up these immigrants, 
I think, brought a whole new level of consciousness to folks. Number one, of course, the parallels to what happened during slavery were just so evident. And then, like, the response was, we're going to... We'll take the horses take away. the horses out of the equation. It's like, there won't be any, any... Oh, my gosh. I mean, what is tragic, and you all have heard me talk about U.S. policy and world policy around Haiti before and Haitian history and how much of a hand we have had in creating the mess that is Haiti. What's galling is now we turn our back on people who actually have a right to seek asylum, right? One of the great things about America is that the Statue of Liberty stands in New York Harbor and says, bring me your huddled masses. This is a nation of immigrants. And we actually make room for people who are seeking asylum from the very things that many of our Haitian brothers and sisters um, are fleeing from. And, you know, to have a liberal democratic administration not address this in a more thoughtful way. To me, it's personally galling. And it just, I mean, it is so racist looking, right? I'm going to be generous <laughs> and say racist looking. It just, you know, it, it, uh, it it's not a good look. And, you know, these people who've suffered earthquakes and hurricanes and the assassination of their president and lawlessness and all kinds of stuff, you know, we are turning our backs and putting them on flights to go back to the place that, I, come on, who are we? Now, let me just say that it is, uh, I'll just start by saying that the Biden administration is was a better choice than the Trump administration. So, like, that's the preface to everything I'm about to say. And it was embarrassing to see Jen stand at the podium and say that they were going to get rid of the horses as if we didn't see the people use whips on the horse. Like, the horses didn't do anything wrong, as, exactly. as as was already said, right? But for her to say that with a straight face was just offensive and embarrassing. Like, that was just bad. The second thing is that I was one of the people who was like, you know what, when they come in, they will so obviously just undo the Trump stuff. Like, obvious, right? And then we see they have not. They have not. And this is a great example of, you know, there's been this push. People have been like, well, the administration has been sort of suggesting this idea that the Haitian refugees did not come legally in and they're not requesting asylum in the most legal way. And there are two treaties. And, you know, DR knows much more about this, but the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees and the 1984 Convention Against Torture, uh, which prohibit the U.S. from returning people to countries where they risk persecution or torture. So, like, those are the two governing things around um, refugees in the Refugee Act of 1980, whole system of things. But what Trump did that was a nightmare and, like, questionably legal is that he essentially just got rid of the asylum system. Like, it was, there was no more asylum all of a sudden under Trump. And in March 2020, ordered the Center for Disease Control and Prevention over the objection of the CDC people to invoke something called Title 42. And it was a 1944 public health law that allowed the government to bar asylum seekers in the name of quarantining people for public health. It had never, ever been used to literally just kick people out. It was used only, it was like created only in the context of a public health crisis. It was formed as a part of the Public Health Service Act of 1944 that allowed the U.S. government to quarantine anybody, including U.S. citizens, from a foreign country. It was never used to expel people until Trump. And again, who thought that the Biden administration would just keep it going? And I must say, you know, the Dems should be worried about the midterms and should be worried about the next go round because, you know, we told people it wouldn't be as bad. We would fix it. Da, 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 da. And then you get people. I saw those images of the people whipping the Haitian refugees. I thought it was Photoshop. I thought this was Russian propaganda. And then I looked and I was like, oh, my God, that is real in 2021. That's wild. In 2021. Mm. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. 
With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, hmm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. In more what the heck is happening in 2021 news... My news reflects on the impact of the new law in Texas banning abortions. And effectively, what is happening is ladies from Texas who are seeking abortions are flooding abortion clinics in neighboring states. In fact, since the new law has gone into effect um, in many of the clinics in surrounding jurisdictions, they have seen Um, increases in triplicate, quadruplicate, 10x even. In fact, this one Oklahoma clinic called Trust Women Oklahoma Clinic had 11 Texas patients in August and 110 Texas patients in September. Wow. The Hope Medical Group for Women in Shreveport, Louisiana, um, went from having a handful of patients from Texas to having half of its patients come from Texas. And in the Little Rock Family Planning Services Center in Little Rock, Arkansas, in August, less than 2% of their patients were from Texas. And in September, 19% of their patients were from Texas. And so what's happening is women are traveling long distances the clinics that are providing abortion services, their schedules are full for weeks. And so you have women who are pushing back their date for their procedure, which makes the procedures more costly and more dangerous. And you have women who are ending up just having to carry their pregnancies to term. Marva Sadler, who works at the Whole Women's Health Clinic, which runs four clinics in Texas, says... I think a majority of women are being sentenced to being parents because they can't arrange childcare or take time off from work to travel. Literally in many of these clinics, two thirds of the scheduled patients are from Texas and these clinics are having to hire more doctors and more staff. This is all the result of Senate Bill 8, which you all have heard about 
which is the most restrictive abortion law in the country. It amounts to almost a complete ban on abortions in Texas. It prohibits most abortions after six weeks, which is literally when most people find out. There's no exceptions for rape or incest. And the tricky thing about this is it takes the state out of the equation by charging citizens to enforce the law. In fact, they make citizens bounty hunters because they pay $10,000 per abortion if a citizen sues a clinic or anybody else who violates the law successfully. And while you can't sue patients, the women who are getting these abortions, you can sue doctors, staff at the clinics, even the Uber driver. What? I mean, how does the Uber driver know what you're about to go do? Why should he or she be sued? But it actually is enabling any citizen who has anything to do with it or not do with it in Texas, outside of Texas, to sue uh, the people engaged in the abortion. And uh, the Supreme Court had the opportunity to block the law, um, but they actually refused to do that on a 5-4 vote. The one thing that they did not do was rule on whether or not the bill is constitutional. And so um, there's a big legal argument happening because Roe versus Wade guarantees women the constitutional right to an abortion, but the way this is being implemented all but bans, it, it makes abortion unconstitutional in the state of Texas. Of course, the people who are most affected by this are poor women. Um, in fact, one half of American women who got an abortion in 2014 lived in poverty. And so the vast majority of people who are affected by this are poor women. And there are stories about women losing their jobs, women and men, not just women, but women and men losing their jobs because they took off work to travel a long distance to get an abortion, or women and men not being able to pay their rent or um, their car notes because they spent the money to get an abortion. And what's even worse is that uh, while Oklahoma right now is a bit of a refuge, there are five abortion banning laws in Oklahoma that take effect on November the 1st. So this is a short-lived solution to a big problem if the law in Texas doesn't change because as of November 1, Oklahoma will have even more restrictive uh, bans on abortion. And so at Trust Women Oklahoma Clinic, for example, four of the eight doctors could no longer perform abortions. So uh, the Justice Department has sued Texas, and Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General, calls it an attempt to nullify the Constitution. He says that Texas is trying to nullify the Constitution. Um, and this is going to be a fight that we continue to see because many other states are replicating or attempting to replicate what Texas has done. Um, this has invigorated both sides of the abortion rights fight. And all of that is, you know, is what it is from a policy perspective. But I brought this to the pod because the real world impact of hundreds and thousands of women in Texas, there are millions of women in Texas who no longer have um, the ability to make decisions about their reproductive rights. And women are doing very desperate things in order to not bring children into the world if that's what they choose not to do. And we've seen this happen before in American history. It can only get worse. It won't get better unless we figure out how to do something about this. I didn't know that about 40% of all abortions in the United States are actually medication abortions. Medication abortions rely on pills rather than surgery. There's two pills. It's been available in the U.S. since about 2000 when the FDA approved the use of one of the medications. And it's approved by the FDA up to 10, for up to 10 weeks of gestation. And in 33 states, only physicians are allowed to provide abortion pills. Clinicians providing the medication must be physically present when it is administered in 19 states meaning abortion patients can't take the drugs at home. I mean, it's, it is really wild to see 
how this happens. And as you can imagine, Republican governors in Arkansas, Arizona, Montana, Oklahoma, and Texas signed laws this year prohibiting abortion drugs from being delivered by mail. This was seen both as a way to stop abortion, but also in response to telemedicine that was taking off during the pandemic. So luckily, there are a set of people who are pushing back against these. But remember that the Texas law banning abortion pills will take effect in December. So there's like a a window right now where abortion pills are legal in Texas uh, or like easier to access and that will go out of the way. So it is just really, um, really wild. The last thing I'll say is that eight states require counseling to promote the idea that medication abortion can be reversed. Uh, And mind you that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists does not support prescribing the medicine that supposedly reverses it and says a reversal claim is not based on scientific evidence. These laws are in places like Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Nebraska, South Dakota, Utah, and West Virginia. So my news is from the New York Times. It's about Gail Jones. I have to admit, I'd never heard of Gail Jones, which I then began to feel extreme guilt about. But then I remembered I live in a country that doesn't teach me my own history. But anyway, so Gail Jones is this prolific, incredible, amazing writer. I didn't know. Kaya, did you know Gail Jones? I did not. I didn't know anything about her. I mean, it's wild. It's wild. And so part of it is because I just I have my own like philosophy around like how little we know about black folks like post-civil rights movement. I feel like any action that was happening in the 70s somehow is like really, 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 really unknown, (laughs) more so than the things that predate that. You know, it's a really long article in New York Times. And then I started digging and there have been several articles on her. So she's a little bit mysterious in that, you know, after her first couple of books, she kind of literally like went into hiding. Now, there's a bunch of personal reasons why she did that. And I've even been thinking about, like, do I even share on the pod the personal reasons? But part of this whole discussion around her is really what does it mean to be a public figure? What does it mean to be a writer that, I mean, she's like Toni Morrison status, y'all. Like, Toni Morrison was her editor. And Gail Jones, she's from Kentucky. She's from a fam. And I love, I love, I love, because I read several articles about Gail Jones, but I love the way Amani Perry talks about her because she says, basically, when the white folks write about Gail Jones, they basically talk about how, you know, she was a poor black girl plucked from the South. She went to Connecticut College and the whites saved her. But in fact, she was from this really phenomenal, well-educated family, actually from a part of Kentucky that had the most teachers during the time of the segregated South. So she was amongst writers, became a writer at a very early age, and then went to Connecticut College, then from there went to Brown, and then ended up in Michigan. But it's just really interesting. Of course, I ordered all the books I could. It's just interesting for me. And, you know, I'm going to talk less about like kind of Gail Jones's history, because I feel like everyone needs to go learn on their own and do, (laughs) do their thing to find out and do a deep dive on this woman and her history. But I think for me, it was more of a conversation, particularly thinking about Michaela Cole's statement at the Emmys in terms of like visibility and people feeling the need to be so visible all the time. You know, Gail Jones is this incredible writer, but she doesn't necessarily purport to be a part of the movement, even though she's very much writing for the movement. But for her, she wants to do her own thing. And obviously, like I'm projecting, but... She wants to do her own thing and not necessarily be in the spotlight or, you know, give interviews or basically do all the things now that we expect anybody to do that gains any notoriety. Um, so I just thought that part, just as like a philosophical discussion, was so interesting to me just in terms of like where we are now and what we expect, particularly like from the black community, like what we expect of our thought leaders, what we expect of people that are in the spotlight And how she just didn't play into that and how, in fact, some of her writing, I guess, was so violent that even Audre Lorde said, not quoting directly, but was like, that's a silly little book that the (laughs) woman had wrote because she so disagreed with how she characterized black queerness, actually, in, in one of her writings. So I just wanted to bring this up to the pod because it evoked so many things for me, just obviously, you know, now in my 40s, kind of like filling the gaps of black history still, even though I was a black studies major. So, so much to learn as such an incredible canon, but just also kind of thinking through and, and analyzing 
Gail Jones just kind of as a figure and what she has meant for literature, what she's meant for black women, for black writers in general, but then also just kind of how complicated her personhood is and how all that fits into her story. She's fascinating. I thought the history around it was fascinating. Um, and just kind of thinking about how we see celebrities today, how we see thought leaders today, et cetera, et cetera. So just, you know, wanted to bring it to the pod and get y'all's thoughts on on all of it. Thanks, Diara. I did not know about Gail Jones. I knew about the her most famous book, Corregidora, but I didn't know her and I didn't know anything about her story. And for me, this brought up a whole set of questions around self-definition. You know, the Audre Lorde quote about defining yourself for yourself, that seems to be what Gail Jones was really intent upon. She rejected the characterizations of her that people were writing about. She decided that she wanted her work to speak for her, not these characterizations of who she was as a Black woman, not even just... Uh, vis-a-vis white people, but her response and reaction to, you know, other black writers who weren't cool with the fact that she didn't neatly tie up the story or make her characters remorseful. Um, I found real power in her assertions or her perspective on motherhood, that motherhood is not a defining characteristic for women and sort of unpacking that. And so this whole thing read to me about Gail Jones trying to live life on her own terms and not letting the world tell her story. She didn't want her story, her personal story told. And so she did everything that she could, including moving to Europe and coming back and (laughs) letting people know about it. Um, And all the while she is writing. And so the interesting thing is, blah, out of nowhere, she's got a new book. So (laughs) that part, part. 500 pages of a book. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I do think too, Kaya, you make me think about this, this interesting thing about like, is the art not enough, right? Like you put all this stuff out, you do all this, but the way capitalism is set up is that the art is never enough. Like you actually have to become the product too. Like the art can't do its own. Like you have to do the interviews. You have to go to the parties. You have to, like the art is not enough. And she was sort of like, the art is not only enough, but it is all you will get. And you will get it on my terms when I want you to have it. Like my life is actually too much to give you to. Yes. And there's something about that I just like, I just respect so deeply because I think it is hard to do. I think the allure of celebrity, the allure of being at the party, whether you are the product or not, is just so great. And there's some people, it makes me think of, you know, very differently, but um, Harper Lee, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, like just the refusal, not the like, I don't want to go, but the refusal to participate uh, is just so fascinating to me. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Okay, my news is there's been so much conversation about Gabby Prieto, who was is the missing uh, white woman who whose body has now been found. It's been a long conversation about 
her boyfriend and his family and who was a part of it. And it sparked a conversation about the attention that we either put on or don't put on black women, indigenous women who are who disappear. And what I wanted to bring to the pod is that there's a website called ourblackgirls.com that tracks missing and murdered black girls over time. I had never heard about this website. Uh, this topic had been a topic sort of on the timeline, I don't know, like six months ago, I feel like this surfaced again, but still I literally never heard of this website, ourblackgirls.com. Uh, and I went to it and it it tells the stories of these untold stories of black girls and women who've gone missing or who were found dead under mysterious circumstances. And it was started by journalist and activist Erica Marie Rivers in 2018 as she spends her nights and her time combing through the databases, archive footages, and old articles, whatever she can to figure out how to give voice to their stories. And it just blew my mind. It was such a, it was a phenomenal example of how we take it upon ourselves to tell our stories, to make sure that people aren't unheard. And, you know, in 2020, of the almost 270,000 girls and women who reported missing, 90,000 of them, or about 34%, were black. And remember that black girls and women are only 15% of the U.S. female population. So there is a wild overrepresentation. And remember, in contrast, white girls and women, which include those who identify as Hispanic, make up 59% of the missing while counting for 75% of the overall female population. So I just wanted to bring this here because ourblackgirls.com is a resource. It is a place where you can go to find the information that is not getting picked up in mainstream media um, to tell the stories that we should be focusing on. One of the things that stood out to me in the coverage of Gabby Petito is the fact that everybody and everything in Wyoming got themselves together to look for this woman and in Wyoming, more than 400 indigenous girls and women went missing between 2011 and fall of 2020. Like that part, Kaya. Bananas, part. Mm-hmm. bananas. I've been outraged by, curious about the number of indigenous women that go missing, that people are talking about them. Mainstream folks aren't talking about them. Raising it all up, raising it that black women, indigenous women, Latina women, like this is just across the board. There's just such a different approach to response when it comes to those women being missing. But it it also, your story reminds me, this week, Minnesota actually announced that it's going to have the first task force to investigate missing black women in particular. Um, But I thought that was interesting. You know, anytime Minnesota does something, I'm like, oh, for real? That's what's happening there. And evidently, it's going to be a 12-person panel made up of representatives from the courts, law enforcement, and victims advocacy groups. And they will come up with policy recommendations to address the issue by December 2022. So all that to say, I mean, I think that's the first kind of big actionable thing um, that I've seen in in terms of like a government body. I know the Department of Justice, um, but this was in the Trump times, they were looking into the uptick in black girls missing in D.C. And that was around like 2017. Remember, but there was it was like it was wild. Um, So I don't know if the Department of Justice has picked that back up or where we should actually investigate that a little bit. But yeah, but thanks for bringing this to the Padre. The piece about indigenous women being missing in Wyoming really just, it was a bee in my bonnet on top of how I feel about black women and Latin women of color uh, just being ignored. And, you know, when, when people say black lives matters, right? Like it's not a slogan. This is what we mean. We mean that we want you to look for our women, our black women, our indigenous women, our Latino women, the way you look for white women, right? We, our lives matter as much as theirs. And so we want the same level of energy. We want the same level of action. We want the same level of investigation. And this is also why representation matters. So Secretary Deb Halland, who is the first um, Indigenous American cabinet member, she's the Secretary of the Interior, she in April announced the formation of a new missing and murdered unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs to ramp up 
attention to and investigations of missing and murdered American Indians and Alaskan natives. And so when you have people who are from the community, who know what the community is facing, who know where the gaps are in leadership, then they actually can bring the full brunt of, in this case, the federal government to bear on issues like this. And so I think that I'm appreciative of leadership and policy change, but what I also love about this is this is a little black girl in California who is a journalist by evening and then late at night, she is lifting this up. And it's not just her. There are two women in Prince George's County who started the Black and Missing Foundation. There are podcasts, Crime Noir, Black Girl Gone, Black Girl Missing. There are regular everyday people who are lifting up these stories and telling these stories, making these people's situations known. And we each have a responsibility. We can each tweet and retweet when we see missing people or post on Instagram or whatever. It takes all of us working from grass tops to grass roots, folks, if we are going to um, deal with this epidemic of missing women, especially women of color. And so um, what I loved, DeRay, about this is that Our Black Girls, the website, tells the story these are not, you know, numbers or data. They are telling the story about these women who were mothers and wives and sisters and friends and aunties and and tells you about their lives and makes you care about them in a way we so deeply care about all of these other folks who the media covers. And that is really important to humanize Black women, to humanize Indigenous women and help people understand that our lives matter too. And Pod family, today is Sam's last day with the show, and we want to wish him the best moving forward. You know, like I know, that Sam's analysis of the data and helping us think through how to understand the world we're in has been invaluable. He'll continue to do amazing things, uh, and Sam will always be a member of Pod Save the People's family. Hey, it's Sam. My news this week is a little bit different. This is my last episode of Pod Save the People. It's been quite a journey over many years and hundreds of episodes and countless issues that we've talked about. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you to our listeners for listening to the conversation, for listening to our discussions about the data around each of these issues. And as I leave the pod, I hope that you will continue to engage with these issues in your lives, with family and friends, with policymakers. I hope that you'll continue to look for the data behind the story and disaggregate that data to identify which communities are most impacted. I hope that you'll continue to look for solutions to each of these issues as well, and use data as a roadmap for figuring out which solutions have the strongest evidence that they actually work. So I'll continue to go on writing and analyzing these issues around policing and criminal justice, and I hope that you'll continue to be a part of the work to create change around the issues that you care about, the issues impacting your community, because ultimately we need all of us in this to win, and we need data to help inform our path to justice. Don't go anywhere. More Pots the People's coming. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Today on the pod, I get to interview the one and only Professor Christopher Emden, who wrote the amazing book, Ratchetemic, Reimagining Academic Success. We had a conversation that left me thinking about a host of things, and I think it will with you too. Dr. Emden, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I am excited to be here with you. 
we, we've had you on the podcast before. We've not had a lot of people twice, so it's cool to have you back. Uh, and it's about Ratchet Dimmick, your latest book. Can you talk about, in a lot of ways, in a very obvious way, you're using Ratchet in a new way and sort of like reclaiming it is the best way that I can describe it. Why is that the thrust of this book? Ratchetness has so historically been viewed as this sort of inherently negative really non-respectable, but not in a way where it's like raw and expressive, but it's like lowbrow culture and to be demeaned and to be devalued. And being academic is viewed as the exact opposite, right? To be like, you know, well-spoken and erudite and intellectual, et cetera. And I've always been bothered by the separation that has existed in the world between what is to be ratchet and what it is to be academic. And for me, it's like, why not blur those worlds? Why don't we bring them together in ways that showcase to everyone that you can be both ratchet and academic concurrently. And then for me, it's also like playing with the word ratchet. You know what I mean? Like ratchet is, is certainly a tool. It is this thing that's viewed as being inherently negative. It is also, though, for the New Yorkers in the world or the 90s hip-hop folks, like your ratchet is your weapon. You know what I mean? If somebody got the ratchet on them, you should be scared. And so it's like, like bringing those definitions together, like that your raw and expressive nature is your secret weapon that is hidden to be unleashed when necessary to take on like the academic infrastructure and showcase your brilliance. And so like that's what academic is about them. Now, one of the things that you talk about in uh, the chapter, Cages and Conditioning, and I actually had not seen that Nipsey quote that you start the chapter with. If the people in your circle don't inspire you, you don't have a circle, you have a cage. Yes. That's a great quote. In that section, you talk about what it was like, the reception of your first book. Can you explain to us like why this is an important way to frame this section? I've always been bothered by the way that my work in education gets claimed by folks who align themselves with sort of like the language of the work. Um, you know, I like reality pedagogy or, you know, I like cogenerative dialogues. Like I like one aspect of it and I can attach myself to an aspect of it and then claim engagement with the undergirding philosophy of it, which is about the freedom of black and brown children in classrooms. And so I wanted to be really like clear that this is not a thing to sort of like attach yourself to a version of it. It's a philosophy. It's a way of being. It's a way of knowing. It's a way of existing in the universe. And so, like, academic becomes, like, a philosophical positioning, and it becomes, like, a way I want to be in the world. And so you can't take a word or a phrase or a tool from Dr. Edmund's toolkit and then claim to be about that life, right? Like, you have to have a academic identity and philosophy and way of knowing and being. And so this book is a direct response to the larger narratives in education that allows really powerful and transgressive and emancipatory work to become something that people have, like, a linguistic allegiance to. Um, rather than have like a philosophical and emotional and like holistic adherence to. I don't want my work to be caged. Um, I don't want to be conditioned into allowing folks to take some aspect of the work. Like I want freedom and I want freedom in expression. I want freedom in pedagogy. I want freedom in how we think about black children. And that freedom includes freedom of expression and words and thought and deed and hip hop and, 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 and loudness and expressiveness and dance concurrently with being thoughtful and intellectual and academic and being able to deal with complex information and being well-read and astute. And my belief is that we could do it all at the same damn time. And I want teachers to understand that. And I want young folks to believe that. In that section, you talk about things like hypervigilance. Can you talk about like how that showed up for you in that day and the encounter that you talk about in the airport? Why is that something that you name in relationship to our work with kids? In the book around hypervigilance, even like concepts I talk about, like uh, what I call the educational Stockholm syndrome, even my framing of like the Oreo cookie as a metaphor for Americana. I name all those things because they're often unsaid, but always experienced. And when you don't name things that educators experience and describe the phenomenon and how to overcome it, you become trapped by it. We're all cages to the things about our work, our practice, and our existence that we don't reveal. Like we're guided by the things we don't say more than we are by the things that we express. And so for me, it was about understanding like educators go through hypervigilance. Educators have gone through trauma. Hypervigilance is a phenomenon where an individual who has been wronged, who has been maligned, who has gone through an experience with another person and has not healed from that experience will go into future experiences looking for others to express the same kind of violence that was inflicted upon them initially. Like if somebody stole your bike when you were five years old, and now as a grown-up, you're riding your bike around town, 
you are looking to see who's going to try to take your bike. You're so overcome with looking at every possible individual as going to possibly take your bike that you can enjoy the ride. Even the freedom that can come with riding your bike as an adult, you're bound by your experiences previously. And that's like my vernacular way of describing hypervigilance is like, it's how we are victimized by previous wrongs and are so preoccupied with looking at how those wrongs will play out again, that we can't be free, that we can't learn, we can't teach, we can't grow, we can't be. And so that plays out with teachers, but it oftentimes also plays out with young people, right? Because a young person who's been harmed by ACS or who's been harmed by the criminal justice system or who's been harmed by a judge or a police officer goes into a classroom and sees the teacher as an extension of that same phenomenon, right? Like, like you white, just like the white police officer who took my pops. And so I'm looking for the moment where you're going to try to inflict some harm on me. And because of that, I can't learn. We are always operating with a vigilance about the next lick somebody going to try to get over on us that we can't fully be present in a space. And for young people, that inhibits the ability to learn. And for teachers, that inhibits the ability to teach. Now, I wanted to note, too, there's a part in the book uh, where you address head on this idea that the students are hard to teach, the school is hard to staff, the neighborhoods are violent, and the kids are bad, which is just a set of things that I've heard in every educational setting I've ever worked in. This idea that, like, in some ways, our kids and our communities are beyond help, uh, beyond skill building, beyond learning. How do you contend with those notions, uh, and how did you think about that in terms of the book? So in the book, I try to describe that the inability of a power wielder to see the magic and beauty within communities does not mean that the communities don't hold that magic to bring it to teaching and learning. The inability of the structure of traditional you know, teaching and learning to identify the ways that young folks of color, in particular in urban spaces, express their desire to learn does not mean that those young folks can't learn or don't want to learn. And so for me, like, I, I try to reimagine the way we look at this thing. And, you know, people talk about, like, you know, having deficit views and having asset-based views. I think it goes beyond that. Don't look at the community in a deficit way, and then you can see that they're wonderful. Like, it's not that. It's like, literally, some folks just lack the ability to be able to just discern the magic in the ways of expression of certain communities, and as a consequence, they demonize it. So, like, one of the examples I give in my work all the time is, like, some folks will see a bunch of black kids hanging out on a street corner as violence about to happen or loudness or distraction or a reason to call the police. You get closer and you're like, this is a hip-hop cipher. They are rapping and memorizing information. They're, they're displaying poetry. They're activating the imagination. They're doing metaphors and analogies and sharpening their, their linguistic swords and skills. And they're giving each other mantras of positive affirmation. And they're celebrating beauty and magic. And it's an educational moment. And if you cannot make sense of that moment, you will say, look at that gathering of black, angry kids. And so for me, it's like, how do we see the magic in the ratchet, right? Like, how do we see that what folks have identified as wrong actually has magic in it, and that, that magic can connect to how they learn. That maybe it's a deficient, like I try to reframe in the book all these phrases like achievement gaps. Some kids ain't got no achievement gaps. You've got gaps in your ability to see their genius. That, that's a deficiency of the individual who sees them only as achievement gaps. There are gaps in the ability of the test to be able to capture the complexity of the depth of their knowledge. That's a systems achievement gap, right? There's an achievement gap in the teacher's ability to be able to know that young folks of color need story and metaphor and analogy to activate their genius. And if you can't tell a good story, you're deficient, not them. Reclaiming of the magic in the ratchet. Also, like, being very explicit about understanding that ratchet is has been intentionally used as a way to demean young women of color in particular. Like, black women are the ones who are the most ratchet. And even black men will weaponize ratchet against black women. And so for me, like, saying, no, we all ratchet and we all are ratchetemic, it's almost like an opportunity for us to be able to reclaim this thing that we used to demonize a segment of our population as all of us and then remind us that those things actually aren't bad or problematic at all, but rather they're gifts. Uh, what do you hope teachers walk away uh, from your book with? The first thing I want teachers to understand, particularly white educators, is that your whiteness is not an impediment to your effectiveness, but your attachment to white supremacist ideologies is, number one. Number two, those who we name as inherently violent or problematic are actually the ones who can offer us a pathway to transform the system or a lens to look at the system to expand the ways that we teach, too. 
Three, what we hold up as the ideal and as smartness and as intelligence is weak, it is flimsy, it is useless. And if we are thoughtful about it, the only reason why it still stands is because we hold it up. And I talk about that in the Oreo chapter, which is probably my favorite chapter of the book. Four, all young people deserve certain inalienable rights of the body. They all deserve the right to be here, the right to be present, the right to love and be loved, the right to express passion, the right to speak truth to power, and the right to knowledge. And oftentimes, the challenges that we have in getting them to have, like, content knowledge acquisition is a reflection of the denial of those rights that have nothing to do with content but have everything to do with humanity. Uh, another thing I want teachers to understand is that if you do not interrupt this process of teaching and learning that demeans the humanity of young folks, like if you don't like just stop it, then you are complicit in the results that come from it, which sometimes equates to young folks being rushed into the criminal justice system, which means that young folks don't graduate and the trajectory of their lives is truncated towards agency and possibility. And so if you don't stop this trash, it's your fault. And you can't blame the system when, as a pedagogue, you have the power to be able to transform the system by what you do. I want teachers to understand the need to be able to just celebrate the identities of young folks. I tell stories about young folks, you know, like the Decepticons, a street gang in New York that started in one of the most beautiful and powerful and academically rigorous schools in New York City. But the, the kids who are the most intelligent, when perceived and viewed as thugs, say, you, you want thug? I'm going to perform thug. And so when we don't embrace their identities and their culture and their genius, they will perform an identity that is reflective of what we project on them. And when they do that, you can't blame them. And most importantly, I want teachers to make meaning of this in a way that matters to them. It's not even a book just for educators, right? Like, I don't think teachers are just those who have a credential to teach, but rather that every adult who is youth-facing is a teacher. And so every adult who is youth-facing, who interacts with young people, who has children, who has nieces and nephews, who wants the folks that they face to be able to walk in their genius and their brilliance, I'm like, they all have something that they can gain from a rachidemic approach to looking at the world and a rachidemic approach to conversations with young people and a rachidemic approach to looking at young folks. Teaching is a performance art, and young people are works of art. And when you look at works of art, you know, you don't say, oh, that's a good piece and that's a bad piece. You say, I want to make sense of what the artist is trying to convey. I want to make sense of what led the artist to create this thing. And as a performance artist, I want to convey something to the audience that speaks to their soul. And if we all look at teaching in that expansive way and look at how we see each other and young people that way, I think we're better off as a world, as a society. You know what I mean? I love it. I love it. I'm interested too, um, you know, since we had you on for your first book, what did you learn after that? But, you know, it's like we spent all this work to like put the book out in the world and it's like writing the book is like a feat of God. And then it goes out in the world and it's like, it, it is no longer just yours. It's everybody's. Yeah. And now you've done that twice. Mm-hmm. How has that been? Like, what have you learned or what would you say different or what would you, I don't know. Like, I'm interested in that. Yeah, I feel you. Like, you know, for white folks was a, a book that had a slow burn, right? Like, you know, it came out and people were like, he put white folks in his title. He put y'all in his title. Like, it was like, people didn't know how to receive it. And then over time, people saw beyond the title and dug into the book and so what I was trying to say, this book, it was like, you know what? I don't care if they get it or they don't yet. Like, I'm just going to say what's in my heart and soul about teaching and learning because I, I realized that folks can get the ideas in for white folks and still screw this thing up. And so it's like, don't police yourself. Don't put it in a way that's palatable to school leaders or teachers or the public. Don't dance around the theme or topic. Like, you wrote a book called Ratchademic. Bring big Ratchademic energy into this book. I wrote this one like I was writing a rap verse when I was 14, and my goals are not to be a professor or a writer, but to be a rapper. I had wordplay and double entendres. I had themes. I had topics. I had stories. I had, like, ideas that aren't fully developed. And I said, you know, let me just drop this idea here so somebody could read the book and pick up the idea and run with it. I played little tricks with the pen in this book. Like, you know, I wrote a chapter called Dr. White, and then I wrote about the cream filling of the Oreo that happens to be white. And then I had a theme in an opening chapter that I brought back up in the fifth chapter the same way that Kendrick would, would like use a rhyming word in the first bar and then wait till the like 13th bar to bring it back up. And I wrote a hip-hop ed book without naming a hip-hop ed by saying all the things I wanted to say that I didn't say in the last book. And the book is what, you know, it's what the title is. Like it's Ratchademic Reimagining Academic Success. I just wanted to break down and then rebuild up like what academic success is. Like, is academic success passing a test, or is academic success 
feel uncomfortable to go read something that you've not learned in school, but you know you have the capacity to be able to sit with that work and be fluent. You know, is academic success, you know, getting a credential or degree, or is it being able to engage in a conversation with somebody with a credential or degree and not feel imposter syndrome, which I write about in this book. It's like my work, man. Like, it's the one for me. And whether it sells two or 2,000 or 200,000, it's something that I had to say. I had to say it right now. I, I let it all out of my gut so I could be free and clear to do my next work. One of the things that we ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? What is that? Two things. And both of them come from my mom. The first thing she said to me that I'm thinking of right now is little drops of water make a mighty ocean. And at 13, I had no idea what that meant. Um, now it makes perfect sense. That, that there is no grand change that comes that's an ocean, that's a deluge of water to wipe away oppression and inequity in schools. But it's really about consistency. Little drops of water, it keeps dropping. Dot, drop, 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 and consistent patterned action that are like little drops of water, can bring a building down. And so don't stop being a drop of water. You will become a mighty ocean. Um, so that's the first one. And the second one, you know, is if their hands don't move when you talk to them, don't trust them. It's <laughs> kind of crazy, right? But is that from your mom? Yeah, that's my mom, man. That is so black. Yeah, if their hands don't move when you talk to them, don't trust them. Again, I was like, what are you talking about? And then when somebody's speaking from the heart and from the soul, if fire is coming from the belly, your body has to move to let it out. You know what I mean? Like, it, if it's big, ratchet-demic energy, like, if it's big, raw, ratchet, expressive truth from your gut, your body won't allow you to sit still. And a lot of folks talk that revolutionary talk, and you can tell they don't believe it because their body don't move. And so it's like, yeah, man, I, I want folks to move. I want folks to dance. I want folks to be so excited about what they have to offer that their body can't sit still. Because that, to me, becomes a marker that they're coming with something rachidemic in their belly, and the world needs to listen to it. You know what I mean? I love it. That is so wonderfully black. I think that's great. Okay, and then the last question is, what do you say to people who read your first book, Education still seems screwed. It feels like we haven't made a lot of progress. What do you say to those people? I am disgruntled with a lot of things in education. I don't like where we are with assessments. I don't like where we are with teacher training. I don't like where we are with pedagogy. I don't like where we are with allowing young folks to be expressive in school. I'm not, I don't like where we are with funding. I don't like where we are with the movement towards privatization. Like, there are things I don't like, but education ain't screwed. Because as long as there are young people who show up to buildings and we allow them to be who they are in the pursuit of their own learning, this thing can change. But we also still have immense possibility. And like when I talk about academic man, like I'm, I, like I want folks to understand that I feel this in my gut that things start being different in schools when we allow human beings to be who they authentically are. And, and when I say authentically are, I'm not saying like let the kids just be ratchet and loud. I mean, like, let teachers lead with who they are. Like, everybody want to be culturally relevant to young people, and they're not culturally relevant to themselves. And as a consequence of that, they cannot teach and be culturally relevant. I'll give you an example. Like, a teacher who comes to the school and performs who they think a teacher should be. Let me be like the teacher I had when I was in fifth grade. Let me be like the person they told me to do in the school of education. And so the teacher themselves are performing some version of teacher that is not who they are. And that's why their teaching is so problematic. And if that teacher brought their full self, and they were authentic, even if their version of authenticity did not reflect the authenticity of young people, young folks will connect to that teacher because real recognizes real. And I think sometimes we make this thing a lot more complex and layered and nuanced than it actually is. Let folks be themselves. Hold high academic expectations and don't demean those things. Don't make them less than. Like, algebra is still algebra. Trig is still trig. Science is still science. Like, we're not going to dumb this down. We're not going to lower the expectations. But we're going to allow folks to, we're going to love folks up to those academic expectations by allowing them to be themselves in the pursuit of their own learning. So schools ain't screwed. Our worldview is, you know, young folks aren't broken. The system isn't broken. It's just that we've allowed it to be that way. Because as long as there are young folks who are alive with immense and infinite potential, we can't look at that infrastructure as completely broken or flawed. We have to look at it as just another side of possibility that we've not reached yet because we've not opened up the reins to let folks learn and teach the way they know how to. I love it. Have you, you have not worked inside of a school system, have you? Like not just in a school, but like at the system level. Not on the system level, man. Like teacher, AP, researcher, but never like district leader or like um, 
superintendent of schools or anything of that nature. Would you go to the district level? I would go to the district level if folks would let me do what I know is right to do. I've gotten those invitations, and it's like, y'all don't want me. Y'all want my face. (laughs) Y'all want my name, but y'all don't want me. Because as soon as we start having those conversations, it's like, here's how we do things, and here's what you need to And I'm like, ah. Because I, I refuse to be locked into a role that robs me of the truth I hold in my belly about what it's right to do. Um, so I would do it, but I, I got to let folks let me do what I need to do. I only ask because, you know, I, so I worked in schools, I, I did after school, and then I was the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. There was something about having to make a decision that impacted 200 schools every day. Mm-hmm. Like every, that just like completely changed the way that I saw mm-hmm. our work and our responsibility because it was, you know, at the school level, I knew my stool really well, but all of a sudden it was like, wow, I got to figure out how to do this thing across a whole set of schools. And, to, and it was just a very different way. So I'm always interested when we get, yeah. you know, we get such incredibly smart people like you. And I'd be interested in like wh- how having to make decisions at the district level would influence the way you thought about uh, what was possible, what wasn't possible, what levers were, you know? So that's my push to you is I think you, I think both yeah. of you learn a lot, but I'd be, I'd be so interested in like how you thought about solutions from that perspective. What I think that people don't get about district level leadership or even school level leadership is that there's a misperception that leadership on that level equates to having like a unified approach to everything or like a standardized method for everything. So I believe in this thing. And if I standardize this thing, then that'll be best for everyone. And I think that it's possible for you to have a standardized method to allow folks in their locales to develop what they need for them. Some of the very, very like fine aspects of leadership that folks just don't get. I think we get locked into believing that I make a decision for everyone. And so I have to be like really broad in my decision-making. Or I could say, you know what? I'm going to be broad in creating an infrastructure that allows cogenerative dialogues across each school where particular factions within those communities identify a thing about their unique school, and I help them to see it to fruition. So I could standardize the method for garnering the information for each locale, and I could be equal parts localized and standardized, and that there's a really powerful interplay that can happen. We've been conditioned to believe that leadership means equality. Equality never equates to good pedagogy, because good pedagogy is always localized. You better preach today. Dr. Emden... Thank you for coming on the pod. It's always a pleasure. I walk away knowing a little bit more about a lot. Uh, I appreciate you. And tell people where they can go to stay in touch with you and uh, to buy the book. Thank you so much, DeRay. And I know this is the closing, but I have to say this. So let me tell you why you're academic. Can I, can, may I real quick? So check this out. When you came in the game, like, and when I say came in the game, I'm not saying that you were not in the game prior to, but you, you, know, you are out there teaching, you are out there leading you're out there protesting, you're out there fighting for black lives before it became a thing. And it's so funny because, you know, I, I don't know how to have a filter, right? People always say, like, why are you still rocking that blue vest? Why are you still rocking that blue vest? Like, it's been all the time. Why are you rocking that blue vest? Because he came in the game rocking the blue vest. And so no matter where the trajectory of my life takes me, right, no matter if it takes me to run for mayor or it takes me to be on the board for this or it takes me to be visible in this endeavor, I am holding on to the thing that came with me when I came into where I was, right? Before Pod saved the people, I was with the people. And I was rocking this best with the people, so I'm going to rock this best now. And what folks don't understand is that your best is your wretchedness. It's the raw expression of who I was then that I carry with me into these spaces now. So now that I am where I am, I have access to things. I have platforms to preach and, to, and I have opportunities to be able to connect with communities. I am academic. I'm seen as bright. I'm seen as insightful. I'm seen as, as a person who can hold a really good conversation. But I was rocking this best then, so I'm going to rock this best now because my ratchet will carry me and will stay with me no matter where I go. And so the best for me is the embodiment of a holding on to the thing you came in the game with, just like we all need to hold on to the thing, our humanity that we came into the world with so we can be academic. So I, I got to just share that with you. Like when I see you rock what you rock then and rock it now and you do big things, I'm like, how ratchetemic is that? And wouldn't it be magical if we all held on to those things um, and didn't let them go, even as we entered into where we're destined to be? The book is ratchetemic, reimagining academic success. 
It's available wherever books are sold. If you go somewhere and um, they ain't got it, say, go get it. I am Chris Emden. I could be found on Twitter, at Chris Emden. So it's at C-H-R-I-S-E-M-D-I-N. I could also be found on Instagram with the same name. I hope you guys um, pick up Ratchademic and find some truth and magic in it. And I would love to hear from you once you get it about what you think. Awesome. I appreciate you. Um, that was that meant a lot to me. You know, people do give me a lot of grief for the best. And it is so simple to me. I'm like, y'all, I, this was the only thing I had in the middle of the street. This is it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will just never, ever lose a relationship. And people think I love vests. It's like, I know it's one vest. It's the same dirty vest mm-hmm. that gets cleaned by Patagonia. I don't have a deal. They just help me. But I appreciate you. All love. Always. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.